All right, it's time for Children's Church. Uh, we have folks in the backs to take you downstairs, so kids head out to the back of the sanctuary, and we will pray here as we get ready to open God's Word. Father, we thank you for this time now to open the Bible. We are here open to your Spirit's leadership, and we know that your Word is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray now it will pierce into our hearts and minds and speak a word directly from your heart to us. We pray that your spirit will apply it to each of our lives so that when we hear it, Lord, it will be a message that speaks directly to our situation, to who we are and what we need, that we might become like Jesus. So we pray that you'll help us now to be responsive we thank you for our children and those who are going to be leading them, and we pray that you will do a great work in us as we come before you right now. And may we leave here knowing that we have been in your presence, and may we be obedient to whatever you would say to us. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21, and then the first verse of chapter 4. As we continue our look through Philippians verse by verse, we come to this passage that really points out the dramatic contrast of your life. As a Christian, your life is a great contrast to what you find in this world. At least it should be. Our lives ought to be a glaring difference to what is typical and ordinary in this life. Uh, for one thing, this passage says very, very pointedly, as a Christian, you are a citizen of heaven. You are a citizen of heaven. And that should make a tremendous difference. We live on this earth, but we are citizens of of heaven. And our lives should be a dramatic contrast to what we see in the lives of those who don't know Christ, who aren't following Christ. And Paul is really driving that home as he lets God lead him to write these verses to the Philippians. And beginning in chapter 3, verse 17, and then com continuing to verse 1 of chapter 4. Follow with me as I read. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame." who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. <clears throat> Paul starts out here by saying, follow a good example. Follow the right examples, heavenly examples. 
And he has been accused of being arrogant by some, by critics, because he says, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Now, Paul was anything but arrogant. We have many places in Scripture where Paul makes it abundantly clear. He calls himself the chief, uh, the chief of sinners. He says about himself that there is nothing good in him. And it's only by the grace of Jesus Christ that he has come into a relationship with God. But here he does say to the Philippians, you need to seek to follow the example of those who are following Christ. We have Paul elsewhere saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's what he's saying here. He's not holding himself up to be a a perfect person. But he is holding himself up to be a person whose mind is not on earthly things, but on heavenly things. Someone who is seeking to live his life to the glory of God and is willing to sacrifice whatever it takes that others might come to know Jesus Christ. The basic meaning of the word he uses here, the word is mimetes in the Greek. It is the word we get. We get the word mime from it, a mime. An English woman went to France to study under the famous mime artist, Marcel Marceau. All day he taught his students how to make the movements of mime. And each evening they would come back to see him perform. Their performances then, as the time went on, as they studied under him and then observed his performances, their own performances then became indelibly marked by the style of the master that they studied. This is a picture of a Christian who imitates the Lord by exposure to him. And Paul is saying, as you see me follow Christ, imitate Christ, then follow that pattern. And that's what God would have us to do. Now, number one, this is a great challenge to all of us as Christians that we ought to be an example, right? We ought to be able to say like Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. Not in an arrogant or braggadocious sort of way, but because we want Christ to be glorified more than anything else. We want Him to be declared and lifted up through our lives. So we ought to do all that we can under the power and leadership of God that we might be like Jesus so that others will see that in us. Now, we can't make people imitate us, but you know what? You have great influence. You have tremendous influence, particularly on young people that you have uh, in your life, that you have a circle of influence over. And as they see Jesus in you, as you follow him and as you imitate him, then they often will begin to learn about Jesus through you. You're the first open door that many of those children will ever see the love of God, experience the love of God. So we have a great responsibility to try to be a good example and to follow the example of Christ. Paul's mind and his life were set on heavenly things. Now, he doesn't say here, follow me and only me. Notice that he says, 
Join in following my example and note those who so walk. So he's saying follow the example of all of those who are following Christ, who are holding up Christ. You follow that example. Now, what is the, what is the insinuation here? That everybody is following some kind of example. You're either following the example of those who follow Christ or you're following some other kind of example. There's something or someone who has influence over your life and you are seeking to imitate someone or something. And if it's not Christ, if it's not those who love Christ and are following Christ, then you've set something else up as being God in your life. And that's when he now moves to the opposite of the good example. Because he goes on to say to them, For many walk or live their life, the pattern of living, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. We don't know exactly who these people were. It's possible these were people who were had actually wormed their way into the body of Christ, the church, who weren't actually Christians but who claimed to be. We know that there were Judaizers who were seeking to lead astray the people of God, particularly those who were Greeks. And there may have been some in this church who were seeking to say, it's not by grace through faith that you follow Christ. You must first Become a Jew. You must come under the law. You must observe the rules and the regulations of the law. And only then can you follow Christ. And Paul fought against that with every fiber of his being. Paul was a Jew. Paul had been a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knew all about the law. But Paul didn't want the gospel to be violated. He didn't, he didn't want it to be uh, made Dirty and of no effect, in effect, a false gospel by having anything added to the pure gospel. That it's through the death and burial and resurrection of Christ and your faith in Jesus that you are forgiven of your sin by grace through faith in him alone. They were trying to add something to it. And so in so doing, they had become not good examples, but evil examples. That's possible. It could also have been simply uh, those who were worldly and lost that had gained influence or still had influence over these Christians. But either way, what Paul is saying to them is that if you're not committed to Jesus Christ and holding up the truth of the gospel, you have become an enemy of the cross of Christ. Even those who claim to be Christian, those who follow some other way other than Jesus and Him alone, they become an enemy of the cross. If you make the cross of no effect by saying it's Jesus plus or it's my works, it's my goodness, I'm going to get to heaven because I have worked my way there, I deserve it, it's all about me, you become an enemy of the cross of Christ. Because the cross stands forever as the, as the Word of God 
that we are sinners and have no hope apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not Jesus plus, it's Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying to these Philippian believers. Don't let yourself be led astray, no matter how glib or how uh, attractive or charismatic a philosophy or a person may be if they are saying something other than the gospel as set forth in the scripture. They are an enemy of the cross of Christ. Now, Paul goes on to describe what's going to happen to those people. Oh, they may look... They, they may look like they know it all. They may be able to give the appearance or the, uh, they may give off the idea that they've got it all figured out and they are worthy to be believed and to be followed. But Paul says about them whose end is destruction, there's going to come an end. There's going to come an end for all of us. Our days are numbered on this earth, aren't they? And when those days come to an end, what will be of the person who has chosen their own way, a false way, other than Jesus and him alone? What will come of that person? Destruction. Destruction. Their life will lead to destruction rather than to eternal life. And so Paul is saying, don't, don't follow that example. Don't go down that pathway. This reminds us of Jesus when he talked about the narrow gate, remember? What did he say? The way is narrow that leads to life. The road is narrow. And he said, few will find it. But what did he say about the broad way? He said, there are many who will rush down that way. And he called it the way that leads to destruction. Destruction. This is what Paul is saying too. Their end is destruction. Whose God is their belly. The belly, meaning the appetites. And notice with a small g, Paul is saying that's what has happened to those who reject Jesus and the gospel. They have made in their life, their appetites become God. So whatever they feel or desire at a given moment in time, that's what they go after. That's what they, they sell everything out that they might obtain. Whatever has, is the latest whim that has come into their mind or their heart. They don't have a driving objective to life. There is no overarching purpose to life. Instead, it's all about what they feel and what they want and what comes into their mind and heart at a given moment in time. Their God is their belly their desires, their appetites. And you know folks like that. They just, they want to be happy. They want, they want to find purpose and meaning, but they're trying to find it in all the wrong ways in all the wrong places. And so they, they just are driven by whatever the latest fad is or the latest idea that comes along. And whatever that is, they're, they're going to have it or, or bust. And they usually bust. Whose God is their belly? We serve a Savior who's alive and who has a plan for life. And we are sold out to that plan and that purpose. And all the other things we do in life fit in under that. 
overarching purpose of life, and that is to know Christ and to make Him known. And if anything else becomes God in, in your life or mine, then we are beginning to look more like these people than we do like Jesus. And Paul is saying to these Philippians, don't let that happen to your life. Because their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame. There are people who claim the name of Christ today who are now advocating and holding up ideas and behaviors that are totally opposite of what the Bible teaches. And they are glorying in what is shameful. You see, that's what this way of living and thinking, that's where it will take us. To the place that we call evil good, and we call good evil. And whatever we have adopted as our latest fad or belief or philosophy... We're willing to hold that up no matter how shameful it may be. We must not be that way. God does not change. His word does not change. And so we must always stand up for the truth of the gospel and for the word of God. And Paul is urging them not to follow that wrong type of example instead follow his example as he follows christ and he describes them sums it up who set their mind on earthly things so only you can answer the question is your mind more set on earthly things or on heavenly things the things of god or the things of this world only you can answer that question but God will tell us the truth. He'll shine his searchlight on our hearts if we're willing to see the answer, if we're willing to hear what he's saying to us. And it doesn't have to remain that your, your mind and your heart are set on earthly things. If that's the truth, then just admit it to God and say to him, Lord, I don't want to be that way. Through your grace and power, I want to be heavenly minded i want to be set on your plan and your agenda he'll help you to do that he'll help me to do that the contrast can be jarring between a person who's set on earthly things and one who's set on heavenly things pastors sometimes and you too if you go to very many funerals sometimes you are jarred with this reality once in a while, I get asked to do a funeral for someone who is not a Christian, a family. They just need somebody to do the funeral. And it is amazing that many times you'll go and you'll do those funerals, and I'm thinking of one in particular. All of the songs were Christian songs, hymns, beautiful messages. Everything about it was all of the songs were, were biblical and I had prepared a message, you know, basically to share the gospel. That's what I often try to do at funerals, any funeral, but particularly that kind of a funeral. Because I know there are going to be people there who they won't darken the door of a church, maybe for the rest of their life, but they're there at that funeral. So they're going to hear the gospel. But at one particular funeral, I'm remembering many years ago, 
there was a family member who got up and spoke after these beautiful Christian songs. A family member got up and spoke about this elderly lady. And what they said was that the whole overarching purpose of that lady's life, and I keep remembering this phrase, to go to the boats, to go to the boats. And by the boats, they didn't mean out to the Lake of the Ozarks. They were talking about the casino, the casino. And even toward the end of life, when she could barely get around and barely breathe, all she wanted to do was go to the boats, go to the boats. Well, they were telling the truth. What's going to be said about you when you come to the end? Will it be that jarring contrast? Maybe these beautiful Christian hymns will be played talking about loving Jesus and following Jesus and living for Jesus. And then is someone going to get up and say, your whole life was about going to the boats? Only you have control over that. You have to choose the example that you're going to follow. And praise God, you can make the right choice. He's provided lots of wonderful examples that you can follow. And most importantly, he's given us Christ in his word. We can follow his example. So that when you come to the end of life, it won't be that jarring contrast. It will be a contrast, a contrast to this world. But it will be consistent with the word of God. Consistent with what God wants for your life, that you live for Jesus and to accomplish whatever he wants you to do with your life. And that brings Paul to his great statement that we read together earlier in verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. For our citizenship is in heaven. Now, as Americans, we we are so blessed to live in the United States, and we value our citizenship, and we should. And we should try to make this nation the, the best nation it can be. This is where God has placed us. But I hope in your life you see beyond being an American citizen that what Paul is saying here is truly dramatic. You are already a citizen of heaven. Heaven is not just a faraway place you're going to be a part of someday. It is, but you're already a citizen of heaven. Because Paul chose his words very carefully as God led him. He says, our citizenship is. It's a present tense. Actually, it's a, it's a past accomplishment with an ongoing result is the way he chose to write it in the Greek meaning that you, are, you already are a citizen of heaven, and you are now. You, it continues all through your days on this earth. What Paul is saying is to live as a citizen of heaven. Be what you are. You are already a citizen of heaven if you know Jesus. If you've accepted Christ into your life, you're already a citizen of heaven. Now, Realize he's writing to the Philippians, 
this, the uh, Philippi, what Philippi, where they lived, was a Roman colony. And Paul here is using language that would have meant a great deal to them. Because there would have been a, a large number of them who were actually Roman citizens. We don't know how many of the Philippians would have been citizens of Rome, even though they were living in Philippi. But there would have been a significant number. And even those who weren't, they would have liked to have been citizens of Rome if they were not. And so what Paul is saying is to these Philippians, you know what it's like to be living in Philippi but be a citizen of Rome. And that's our situation. We're living on this earth, but we're already citizens of heaven. And as, as citizens of heaven, living in this colony, living in this world, we are to represent the name of Christ. Because everybody who looks at you, they ought to be able to see and notice there's something different about that person. That is a citizen of heaven. That's a follower of Jesus. And we ought to represent his name very, very well. Because we are citizens of heaven. Even though we're a great distance from heaven, it's really not such a great distance, is it? We're one breath away. We're one second away from heaven. And nobody knows when that moment will come. But here we are on this earth and we represent Jesus Christ. This citizenship is a fixed fact. It is already the moment you give your life to Christ, you become a citizen of heaven. Christ comes to live within you. Warren Wiersbe notes that this is the word from which we get the English word politics. I don't know if we want to hear that or not. But the word used here for a citizen of heaven is the word from our, our English. We get the English word politics from. It has to do with one's behavior as a citizen of a nation. Paul is encouraging us to have the spiritual mind, and he does this by pointing out the characteristics of the Christian whose citizenship is in heaven. Just as Philippi was a colony of Rome on foreign soil, so the church is a colony of heaven on earth. So here, every time people see the church of Jesus Christ, every time they drive by, every time they encounter us as individuals, a colony of heaven, they are passing by. They ought to experience a taste of what heaven is like who Jesus is, so that they too will want to become a part of the family of God. The citizenship is a high privilege. Anybody in Philippi who was a Roman citizen, they would have been keenly aware of how important, how meaningful that was for them in their life. We must not take for granted the great privilege it is that we are citizens of heaven. And that ought to have an effect then on what we do with our lives, what motivates us, what we want for life itself, because we belong to Jesus Christ. And then Paul finally says, eagerly await the Savior, eagerly await the Savior, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Eagerly await the Savior. Now, once in a while, you'll hear somebody say, well, Jesus, he, he came when he came and was born in Bethlehem. He came to be the Savior, but he's not going to be the Savior when he comes back. He's going to be the King of Kings. I understand what they're saying. You understand that. That's true. He will be coming in all of his glory when he comes again. But he is also coming as our Savior. And Paul said, we eagerly await, we eagerly wait for who? The Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when he comes again for us, and that may be the rapture of the church, when he comes to take the church ahead of the tribulation, it could be at the end of the age. We'll be with him when he comes. If we're already in heaven, we'll come with him. First Thessalonians tells us that. And then in the book of Revelation, all of those already in heaven will come with him when he comes again. But in that sense, when he comes again, he will be the Savior because the, the Savior is going to utterly complete the work of salvation. It's completed in terms of our forgiveness, saving us from sin the moment we receive him into our life. But someday, we're going to receive a glorified body. Our bodies will be transformed from this body fit for this earth to a body that is like Him for all of eternity in heaven. And so Paul is looking forward to that day who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body. Fit for where? Heaven. The place we're already a citizen of. He's given us a body that's fit for where we are right now, but someday he'll give us a heavenly body that will not decay, that will not grow old, that won't be sick, no pain, no sorrow. That day is coming. And so to these Philippian believers, he is urging them to look forward to that fulfillment when they will see the Lord face to face. And will become like him. We eagerly await the Savior. What is that? That's being heavenly minded. Now, does, does, does God want us to go through life just with our head up in the clouds. And not noticing anybody or anything around us on this earth? No, he doesn't. He doesn't want us to seclude ourselves somewhere. And get up on top of a big giant pedestal. And just be on that pedestal for our entire life. As if the world doesn't exist. Paul was writing from prison because he was preaching Jesus. But you can be in this world and reaching out to this world and serving Christ in this world, but have your mind focused on the things of God so that His will is accomplished as long as you are living on this earth. Eagerly await the Savior. I close with a uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. He didn't want them to be shaken. He didn't want them to drift away. 
He didn't want them to be captured by a false philosophy, a watering down or a changing of the gospel. He wanted them to stand fast in the truth, knowing that the end will come someday. And stay true, stay faithful until that moment comes. And if things have happened in your life and you have, you've kind of shifted away from the things of God as a Christian, you can renew and rededicate that commitment to Him. In fact, through our lives, there are moments we all need to do that. This world's a hard place, and it will draw us away through grief and sorrow, through pain and discouragement. But it doesn't have to be what dominates us because we're not here for any of that. We are here for Jesus and Him alone. And so may that be what your life is all about. I close with a, an unknown poem, just a very short thing. You may have heard it before. The little choices we must make will chart the course of life we take. We either choose the path of light or wander off in darkest night. The little things, the choices that we make, only you control those choices. Choose to live as a citizen of heaven. Choose Jesus first and foremost. And having received Christ into your life, choose him day by day by day. And the path of your life will lead to light, not to darkness. And you'll be glad that you did. Summing it up, one person said, man's ways lead to a hopeless end. But God's ways lead to endless hope. What do you want your life to be about? A hopeless end or endless hope? Jesus, only Jesus, will give you endless hope. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for this tremendous challenge and encouragement from the Apostle Paul that you laid upon his heart to write. You inspired it. This is directly from your heart to us. And though it was written 2,000 years ago, Lord, it's like you're speaking to us today because you are. It's an eternal word. The human heart has not changed. Everything around us changes, but really the things that matter don't change. So, Lord, we pray that you'll help us to choose you. Choose Jesus. Choose light. Choose life. And we pray that in this moment, if there's someone here who needs to dedicate their life to you, they need to receive Jesus as Savior. Or as a Christian, they need to rededicate their life to you. May this be the moment that they choose to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God, citizen of heaven. And we know that you'll provide a way for us to do that. You'll lead us day by day. There may be other kinds of decisions that need to be made here this morning. And whatever you lay upon our heart, we pray that before we leave here, we will be obedient to you. So you lead us and help us to follow. And we give you praise and glory for being a God of mercy and grace. Always ready to receive us.
always ready to forgive us. May your will now be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.